Well, good morning and happy Easter. I typically start by saying happy Resurrection Sunday. He is risen. Yeah, see the few people who are here who know what to do. Although I think we're used to a much fuller house on an Easter Sunday. This will no doubt be an Easter we will never forget since we're still on lockdown. The COVID-19 pandemic continues. As soon as we're able to regather, we will, and it will be a glorious reunion. In fact, I believe one of the countless things God is doing during this crisis is purifying the church's passion for the church. You don't realize how valuable something is in life until it's taken away from you. How many Christians have taken for granted the weekly gathering of the church? How many Christians will let any other event or commitment override their commitment to the church? They think nothing of missing church to attend a sporting event or go on a hike. But now that the regular corporate gathering of the church has been paused for a month, I hope it only shows you the necessity of this time as being so vital to your spiritual life, your walk, your worship. I hope our time apart only magnifies the value you place on the church in your life as you reevaluate all your priorities through this crisis. Something like a global pandemic to force people to think about their death, which in turn forces them to think about how they're living their life. Our separation is only momentary. It will not last long. But if on the other side of this thing that the church regathers as stronger, purified, even knit closer together in Christ, that would be a great outcome. So like I said, I believe God is using this crisis in part to intensify the value we place on the church. And in addition today, this crisis will most definitely intensify the message of Easter. And that too is a good thing because the message of Easter is something we need to think on soberly and seriously. We aim to do that all the time, but this Resurrection Sunday will prove doubly special. With the advent of global media, it means we're, we're always aware of some disaster going on in the world today. Locusts in Africa, wildfires in Australia, earthquakes in Utah, somewhere in the world the sky is falling. And this sets people on edge. The world does not feel like a safe place. But now with coronavirus, for the first time in the global era, the trouble is truly worldwide. Every nation is affected. It's put a new level of fear into people. And again, it's just forcing people to think about what they don't want to think about, namely their own death. It's coming. It could be just around the corner. It could be like that Virginia pastor who went down to preach to the crowds at Mardi Gras and gets coronavirus, and he dies before he even gets back home. He doesn't even make it back to Virginia. And people don't want to think about that. They don't want to think about death. It's so absolute. It's unstoppable. It's final. People just want to be happy. And, and that's not wrong. It's just that what brings people happiness in this world, people, places, and things, you lose all that at death. And that's depressing to think about. And then you're left to wonder what comes next. The atheist, for example, likes to believe nothing comes after death. And that's a belief they hold on to by faith. They don't really know that nothing comes after death. And yet the, the voice in their heart of hearts will remain this voice of doubt. And the closer they get to death, the, the louder that voice gets. What if there really is a God? What if there is life after death? What if I am to be judged? You know, as Christians, we too answer questions of death by faith. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And none of us has actually seen with our eyes what comes after death, neither the Christian nor the atheist. But what we believe is not a wishful thinking or a blind faith. Rather, what we believe is founded on the more sure word of God, the Bible, which gives us the answers we seek from God himself. And scripture confirms what our hearts testify Namely, that there is a God above. He has created us. He made us in his image. That image has been marred. We, like sheep, have all gone astray, far astray from God's righteousness. And so for that, we're going to face a judgment, a reckoning. And that comes at death. Death is not the end for anyone. Death is merely a door, a gateway to eternity. 
But because of our unrighteousness, death to us represents a door to an eternal judgment and a separation from the glory of God. Biblically, there's good reason to fear death. Not because you lose all the people, places, and things you love, but because you're going to find yourself standing before your creator, whom you denied, whom you scorned and and rejected all your life, whose ways you trampled, and you'll have no answer. You'll stand there like Adam and Eve, naked and unashamed, or naked and ashamed rather, with, with no covering, no excuses, nothing to hide your sin, and, and so off you will go, uh, out of the garden, so to speak, to an eternity away from the special presence of God. But thankfully, the Bible also reveals the love of God. God loves his fallen creation. That moved him to make a second door. And for all of us, death is a door that leads to judgment. But God made a second door that leads to salvation. You want happiness. You want satisfaction. That, that's available only behind this second door eternally. And that door is none other than Jesus Christ. In John chapter 10, Jesus used the metaphor of sheep entering a sheepfold to teach about the people of God entering the place of God for all eternity. But there's only one way in, and it's through the door. And then Jesus said this, John 10, 9, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Jesus Christ is the only means of eternal life. He's the only door. He's the only way. And why is that? Well, it's only by his work that we can be granted entrance. And because of our sin, we don't belong in the kingdom of God. But on the cross, Jesus died the death we deserved. He paid the penalty we owed. And he did this that we might be forgiven, that we might go free. He did this to bring us life from death. He said thereafter in John 10, verse 10, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus didn't come to kill, but to die. That the sheep might have life to the fullest, which is life eternal with God. And he brought about that life by making a perfect substitutionary atonement on the cross. And then he provided that the proof positive that his work was complete. And that proof came in the resurrection. Then on the third day, he rose from the dead and he verified that he had conquered death itself. And so a new door opened, the door to eternal life in Christ Jesus. And speaking of his death, he went on to say in John 10 verse 18, speaking of his life rather, no one has taken it away from me but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. And that's precisely what Jesus would do for us. And now the offer stands to enter through the narrow door by faith, the narrow door of Christ, be saved from the wages of sin, which is an eternal death. But instead you go to Christ, receive the gift of eternal life. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved for with the heart, a person believes resulting in righteousness and with the mouth, he confesses resulting in salvation. Verse 13, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And that's what you must do today for death is still coming. Hebrews 9.27 says, it's appointed for man to die once and, and then comes judgment. All will stand before their creator. And the only question is, will you stand there with Jesus as your judge or as your advocate? And I would urge you to call upon Jesus in faith and trusting him alone to save you today. Now, those who have done so, that the sheep who have entered the sheepfold they go on then to receive this, you might say, a most blessed byproduct, being reconciled to God through Jesus, 
we receive this, this byproduct, this gift of peace. And that peace is not just for the next life, but for this life also. You know, as Christians, we're still going to suffer in this life and then die. We know that. But it's just that now in Christ, we no longer are going to suffer and die as those without hope. Like Paul says in 2 Timothy 4.18, we know that the Lord will, will safely deliver us to his heavenly kingdom. And so at all times, we can say it is well with our soul. And so what, what's there really to fear in this life? And oh yeah, Jesus also said this in John 10 verse 27. My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. And I give eternal life to them. And they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. We are even eternally assured by him. And so what is there ultimately to fear? Nothing. That includes coronavirus, a global pandemic, economic depression, government oppression, even death itself. It's not like we're pretending these things are good. We're not happy about them. But they do not affect our peace in Christ. We've been eternally secured by faith. Nothing, in fact, that happens here below is actually a threat to our security in Christ. And so, therefore, nothing should actually threaten our peace. And so, again, what a blessed byproduct faith gives to us, this unflinching peace. Now, we should add that God intends to use that peace so that no matter what goes on in this world around us, it doesn't matter. We can be more focused on his kingdom and his righteousness. With the peace we have in our souls, we should be more concerned with evangelism than escapism. That's what the world needs from the church. And that's what God wants to see, especially in a time of crisis. Now, why have I told you all this? Most of you already know all this. You already believe in Jesus. You've heard all of this before. Why, why are we going over all this stuff again? Well, it's been said that preaching is usually not about telling people what they must know, but rather telling people what they must never forget. And these are the truth, these gospel truths that we must not forget in a time like this. And we're not perfected yet, and fear and doubt can creep in, especially during hard times. And so that, that's especially why we need to go back and back to the solid rock of God's word and be reminded who we are and what we have in Christ. And tying this back to Easter, is, not, is that not the, the greatest truth you can think of reminding us of the things we must never forget? Because Jesus rose Everything he said and did was true. Because he rose, death was defeated. Because he rose, uh, we live in hope. And that hope is what sustains our mission. That hope sustains our right living. So especially in times like these, we need to be meditating on the message of Easter. Being reminded of the truths we must never forget. Okay, that was all on purpose, a long-winded introduction. What I really want to do this morning is encourage you, the church, by reminding you of some of those things you must never forget, especially related to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I want to let the truth of Scripture minister to you, fill your heart with confidence that there's no room left for fear or doubt to enter in. And that's, that confidence is, is what's going to enable and sustain your worship and your witness all throughout life, especially during difficult times. We need this encouragement from God's word. It's going to come to us this morning from a special passage in Matthew 16. So take your Bibles or at home. You too take your Bibles open to Matthew 16. You can turn there now. Matthew 16 is a pivotal chapter in Matthew's gospel. It's chock full of what we might call pregnant verses. And for our time, though, I really just want to focus your attention on one verse with its great implications. 
As you're turning, I'll read it for you. It's Matthew 16, verse 18. Jesus said, I also say to you that you are Peter. And upon this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not overpower it. That last phrase especially is something worth our reflection, especially in these difficult times. But to understand what Jesus meant by this, this verse, we can't divorce this from its context. So let's start there. In Matthew 16 marks a turning point in Christ's ministry. He's just entered his third and final year. He's turning a corner. And so far, Jesus has been traveling around like an itinerant preacher. But now he's going to become much more private in his ministry, focusing on the 12. And the road to the cross becomes much more prominent. In fact, up to this point, Jesus has never actually revealed to his disciples his impending death and resurrection. But that all changes now in Matthew 16. And with this turning point, it's time for the true identity and mission of the Messiah to come into sharp focus. That's what we get here in this chapter. We're going to pick it up in verse 13. Just make a few comments as we make our way down to verse 18. So starting in verse 13, it says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking the disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Jesus and his disciples. They had just followed the Jordan River 25 miles north from the Sea of Galilee, and they end up in Caesarea Philippi. He took them there to escape the crowds, have some alone time with the twelve. And technically, this was still within the original Holy Land of Israel. It's about as far north as you could go, though, still being those original borders. But in Christ's day, there there was nothing holy going on in Caesarea Philippi. It had become a pagan and Roman stronghold, which makes this a very unlikely place for this, this pivotal confession of Peter that Jesus is the Christ. You know, for perhaps... Jesus took them all the way to the edge of Israel to show them perhaps how far off mainstream Judaism had become. You have to go this far away from the teachings of Jerusalem to get to the true identity of the Messiah. Either way, Jesus begins to question his disciples. He asks them about his identity. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? That's a pretty odd question. Who asks about their own identity? I mean, for you and me, people see us as no one other than ourselves. But it's very clear that Jesus was someone special. He was someone more than the son of a carpenter. How else do you explain his teaching and healings, signs and wonders? But who exactly is Jesus then? The answer is no mystery in Matthew's gospel. And the very ver- first verse tells us he's the Messiah. You go on a little bit, you learn about the virgin birth. We learn he is God with us. So he, he's the divine Messiah. Then at the beginning of his formal ministry, as he's baptized, God himself testifies, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. He's the son of God. Matthew 4, the, the devil knows he's the son of God. Throughout, the demons know He's the Holy One of God. As we read Matthew's gospel, we know exactly who Jesus is. But in real time, that the human characters did not know. With the glory of Jesus veiled, they did not immediately recognize him as the divine Messiah. In fact, the religious leaders of Israel turned on him because he exposed their hypocrisy. So in Matthew 12, They make him out to be Satan incarnate, not God incarnate. He's filled with the devil. But here, Jesus, he's not asking what the religious leaders think. He's asking what what the people think, the crowds, about his true identity. What's the word on the street? And the answer comes in verse 14. It says, and they said, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, but still others, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. Some thought Jesus was John the Baptist. Now, back in Matthew 14, John was just beheaded by Herod Antipas. 
And so somehow, though, this rumor started that John had risen from the dead. He was the first recognized prophet in 400 years. And so some reason, you know, how else do we explain the supernatural ministry of Jesus? Others believe Jesus was Elijah. Elijah was the most renowned prophet from the Old Testament. And it was common knowledge that Elijah would return. Why? Well, for one, he never died. He was taken directly to heaven. And two, the last two verses of the Old Testament say he will return. So maybe Jesus was Elijah come back. If not Elijah, at least some other great prophet like Jeremiah or one of the others. As you see, the the people knew Jesus was someone special. But their views are still wrong because they all fall short. They fall short because they still leave Jesus in the category of forerunner, not fulfillment. Elijah, John, they, they were to be forerunners of the Messiah, not the Messiah. The people thought highly of Jesus, just not high enough. They did not recognize, no, he's actually the Messiah, the divine Messiah. Now, though, Jesus wants to know what his disciples think. So he asked them, verse 15, he said to them, but who do you say that I am? He wants to see what they believe. The true mission of the Messiah is about to be revealed. So they had better get his identity straight. And as you might know, Peter speaks up as the representative of the 12. And he answers verse 16. Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ the son of the living God. And clearly Peter has a different take. He speaks up and says, you're the Christ. And Christ, if you know, it's not a last name of Jesus, not a name, it's a title. It literally means the anointed one. Back in the Old Testament, prophets, priests, and kings were commonly anointed with oil to signify they had been chosen and set apart as God's servants. And it was later foreseen that God would provide an ultimate anointed one, an ultimate servant who would save his people. And this word then for anointed one, Messiah, Christ in the Greek, became the key title for Israel's savior. This is the one who who would redeem them, deliver them from bondage. And so that's what Peter's confessing, that Jesus is that redeemer. He's the ultimate servant of God. He he is that long-awaited one who will finally rescue God's people from their bondage. But Peter goes a step further and adds that Jesus is also the son of the living God. Israel served the living God, the one and only God. And now their understanding of the nature of God and the Trinity was going to expand with the coming of Jesus, of course. But it was clear that even the Jews believed that the title son of God was a title of deity. That's confirmed in John 10, 33. The Jews wanted to stone Jesus for blasphemy because he was making himself out to be the son of God, it says later. But specifically, they said they wanted to stone him, quote, because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God, end quote. Now, at the very least, there's enough of an understanding in Peter's mind that Jesus was no mere man or prophet. He was not just the Messiah, He was the divine Messiah. And Peter was right. Jesus does not rebuke Peter for suggesting this. I mean, if this was untrue, it would be the highest form of blasphemy. But Jesus praises and affirms Peter's confession. He says in verse 17, And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. You know, the mission and the identity of the Messiah are clearly foreseen in the Old Testament. So when Jesus comes on the scene, he starts fulfilling prophecy after prophecy. The observer should have and could have recognized him as the Messiah. But the Jews didn't, mostly because over time they had redefined their expectation of the Messiah. Being oppressed by foreign powers, they started to hope for a purely political Messiah, a ruler or king, who would bear the sword, deliver, their, deliver them from their enemies, like Rome, 
and restore Israel to national prominence. But then here comes Jesus. And while he teaches and performs miracles, he bears no sword. He even tells the people to pay taxes to Rome. He has no political agenda. And in fact, he opposes the religious authorities of Israel. I mean, how can that really be Israel's Messiah? I mean, surely the religious leaders would recognize the Messiah, right? In addition, up to this point, Jesus had not been directly teaching his disciples about his true identity. So, this is not actually an easy confession for Peter to make. It was a confession of faith. He was going against tradition and religious rulers and accepted notions, preconceived notions. But Peter just couldn't deny what he knew about Jesus standing in front of him. This confession, from a human perspective, was a real moment of true faith. But it was also, from a divine perspective, a gift. Like Jesus says, that the Father in heaven revealed this to Peter. He opened the eyes of his heart to behold who Jesus really was. And so it goes for all whom the Lord summons to life. Now, there's, there's a lot. There's a lot more in these verses. We are just skipping right over, but I think we now have enough to get into verse 18. I really want to focus your attention here. So let's do that now. Verse 18. Next, Jesus says, still talking to Peter. I also say to you that you are Peter. And upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. You know, back in verse 17, Jesus used Peter's original name, Simon Bar-Jonah. I mean, Simon, son of Jonah. But you know, Simon had already been renamed Peter by Jesus at this point. That happened long ago, back in John chapter 1. He had given Simon the name Cephas in Aramaic. It's the same as Peter in the Greek. The word means stone. And it shows how the Lord intended to use Peter from the beginning. And Petros in the Greek, it's not talking about a boulder. This is talking about a stone you could throw. But it's rock solid nonetheless. And, and Peter would come to be a rock-like figure in the church. You see that affirmed in Acts chapter 2. But don't confuse Peter as being the foundation of the church. Jesus says next, upon this rock, I will build my church. But he uses here a different word for rock. He uses Petra, which is related to Petras, but Petra refers to an unmovable rock. We're talking a boulder or a cliff. This is the type of rock, unlike Petras, you can't move it. You can't throw it. Also, Petras for Peter, it's a masculine noun in the second person, but Petra is a feminine noun in the third person. Talking about two different things. In the Greek, though, you can see this, this play on words Jesus is forming. He's not calling Peter the rock and foundation of the church, like the Catholics assume, as if Peter's the first pope. No, Peter is Petros. He's a small stone. He would contribute to the building of the church. Yes, he would be a, an important brick, but he's not the foundation. This Petra, the foundation on which the whole church rests, is something else. And what then? What is the foundation on which the church is built? Well, in the context, it can be nothing other than the antecedent. Specifically, Peter's confession of Jesus as the Christ and the Son of God. It is the first time the word church is used in the New Testament. It refers to the called out ones. God is building a church, a body of people who've been called out from the world to himself. How does God build this church though? It's not by the sword or conquest or government or politics. Rather, God's going to build this church body by faith. By this confession, this common confession of Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, which comes from his gospel. That 
is the foundation of the church. And that bedrock, that, that saving confession through the gospel, that's stronger than anything else. Any nation, every, any government, any army. And just to round out your understanding of the church here, Ephesians 2 picks up on this analogy of God's household. And at the bottom of this house, you've got Christ Jesus. He's the cornerstone. Sets the whole thing in order. He is joined by the apostles and prophets who help lay that the foundation of the church. These are the ones the Lord used to, to preach and notably record his gospel in the New Testament, which is the pillar of the church. With that foundation laid, though, the New Testament complete, God is now building up the church brick after brick, stone after stone, believer after believer. Ephesians 2.21 then says, we are those stones and we're being fitted together and built together into the dwelling place of God. See, the church is a spiritual building. It's a body of believers. God's the architect. He's erecting this, this dwelling place for his spirit to dwell. The son brings us about by redeeming people through faith. And they're then called out and, and made stones in this body, forming this, this dwelling place for the triune God forever. That's something to think about. The, the church is not just a brick and mortar building or a denomination or, or anything we think of. This, this is that the dwelling place of God forever, that the people of God. Peter himself understood this. He did not see himself as the bedrock of the church. Rather, he understood all believers are living stones in God's house. Jesus, he's that cornerstone. But you, Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, he says, you also are as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, that's everyone, every believer. You're, you're a living stone. You're a brick in this house of God that God is building for himself. He's creating a house of praise, a temple for him and his people to, to dwell in forever, so to speak. Then you can see here God's plan for this fallen world. He could just judge everyone. Wipe the world out. He would be only just to do so. But he determined to redeem this world and call out many sons and daughters to glory. And by the work of the, his son then, he, he raises piles of dust and he, he transformed them into living stones. And then he, he stacks them together one by one, age by age, into this body, this building He's forming them into a spiritual house, this people collectively. And there's only one body here made to offer up spiritual sacrifices of praise and worship. And in this life, witness. This is how God is redeeming and restoring and changing this world. It comes one believer at a time, one brick at a time. And it comes through, not the sword, not government comes through the gospel of Jesus Christ and this confession of who he really is, the Christ, the son of the living God. And, you know, still in verse 18, what Jesus says next takes God's plans for the church even further. He adds one more phrase here in verse 18. He goes on to add, speaking of the church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Now this phrase is often misinterpreted and therefore misunderstood. The King James calls this the gates of hell. And that's led people to believe Jesus is primarily talking about spiritual warfare here. So you might hear this preached as if the powers of hell will not assail or prevail against the church. Like there's this giant arm wrestling match between Jesus and the devil. And don't get me wrong, Satan and demons do oppose the church, and they will not prevail. But that's just not what this verse is primarily talking about. The term gates is the first clue. 
A gate is not, not a weapon of warfare. You don't siege a city carrying a gate. A gate, rather, is a means of security. You use a gate to keep something out or keep something in. More significantly here, you don't have the term for hell. You have the word Hades, which corresponds to Sheol in Hebrew. In the Jewish mind, Hades simply refers to the place of the dead. This is not talking about the eternal hell. Don't miss this distinction. For example, Revelation 20, verse 14. You've got the final judgment, that great white throne judgment. And what does it say? At the very end, it says death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire. That is the second death. Now that's talking about the eternal place of judgment. Hades is not that place. Rather, Sheol or Hades or whatever you call it, it refers to the grave. It's the place of the dead and it's barred shut by gates. The gates of Hades or death just trap everyone inside. You die, you're trapped. This is how they thought of death. When you die, you go in, you don't come out. Who can ascend from Sheol? Who rises from the grave? Humanly speaking, no one. And so the gates of Hades is simply a metaphor for death. The chains of death, we might say today. Twice in the Old Testament, the Greek version of the Old Testament, the same phrase, gates of Hades, is used simply as a euphemism for death. But here, Jesus is saying that that the gates of Hades, they're not as invincible as you may think. And they cannot overpower or prevail against the church. In other words, those whom God has called out to himself, not even the gates of Hades can keep them away from God or apart from God. Jesus is saying that death itself will not stop his work of reconciling and building his church. Death itself will not prevail over this building. But wait, death prevails over everything, right? Death is the end of the line. Death puts an end to all of man's plans. And that's true, but but not God's plans. And Jesus, as the divine Messiah, was going to conquer sin, Satan, and death itself. How? Through his own death, but then resurrection. This is where the the true identity and mission of the Messiah intersect, which was, was Jesus was about to reveal to his disciples in the same conversation. In Matthew 16, just look down verse 21. Right after it says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed and be raised up on the third day. This is how Jesus would rescue us. The wages of sin is death. And so long as we have a sin debt before God, we must be separated from him. We'll be chained in Hades and then hell forever. But on the cross, Jesus paid our our sin debt in full. He, He bore the wrath of God meant for us. And then rising from the dead, he proved his payment was full and accepted. Death could not hold him because his righteousness overcame our sin. And now when we believe in him, we make the same saving confession. All of his work is transferred to our account. We are reckoned as righteousness. Our sin debt is wiped out, which means death can trap us, keep us in no longer. This is how we can be redeemed and saved from an eternal death. Revelation 1.18, Jesus said, I am the living one, and I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. And paying the penalty for our sins and then rising from the dead, Christ Jesus now has the authority to release captives at will. He holds the keys to Hades. He's got the power to let us out from death. 
That's good news. And this is what Jesus is doing to build his church. And we, in turn, are made living stones through his death and resurrection. This is the only hope. This is the church's only hope. This is the world's only hope. But we in the church, we are assured of our victory over death because of his victory over death. John 14, 19, Jesus said, After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. Romans 8, 2, For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. And then Hebrews 2, 14 and 15, says, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same. That through death, he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. And speaking of Satan, it is true that scripture says right now, Satan holds the power of death. That power is related to sin and deceiving the world. He effectively keeps us all trapped in death. But Jesus, in paying for our sins, snatches away all of Satan's power, so to speak, over us. He does this for his church. And so now, what do we have to look forward to? Even though we're sinners, we are not worthy, but because of what he did, we look forward to this, 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-five. It says, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, altogether, this verse, Matthew 16, 18, and it gives us these massive promises and they carry with them massive implications. I hope you're seeing that this morning, but just look at the the kind of assurance and confidence we get from this as the church. You know, the church is not based on our strength. We're like Peter. We're little stones and God is using us. Yes, but, but we are not the ones assuring the success of the church. The church does not live or die based on how good or effective we are. We are to be used and faithful, yes, but, but the Lord Jesus is building his church. Nothing's going to stop him from that. He died for it. He rose from it. He poured the foundation with his own blood. Nothing will stop him from completing this work. That includes you, by the way, your own faith. And then he assures us that <clears throat> the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Death itself is not an obstacle. God's plans. He's building his church in spite of death. The father intends for the people of God to dwell forever in the place of God with the son of God. Not even death can keep us from that. And to be sure, being fallen, we're still going to taste death in this life. But like Jesus said, John eleven twenty five, he said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? How do you stop that? The world is still under the power of the devil for now. And both the world and the devil hate the church. They hate Christ. That's why they killed Jesus. What do you think they're going to do to the church? Or at least they want to do to the church. But still, how do you stop a people who have overcome death? What do you do when even killing your enemy doesn't defeat them? That's what they thought about Jesus. Like, let's just kill him. We win. No, you don't. But see, that's now the assurance we have. Death is no threat to God and the church that he's building. I mean, listen, what if every Christian in America was killed tomorrow. It'd be no obstacle to God. It'd be a small thing. For one, 
He always maintains a remnant on the earth. And two, the power of the gospel cannot be imprisoned. The God will just go about raising up new living stones. He'll just keep building the church. It's the work he does, not by flesh, not by blood, by his will. And furthermore, even in the death of God's people, even in martyrdom, church history has taught us those are the times when God builds his church the most. It's been said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And that's true. The early church went through 10 major persecutions by the Roman Empire. And at times, they tried their hardest to burn Bibles and kill Christians. But think about the countless Christians who came to faith in that environment. Who would do that? How could you do that? I mean, to stop worshiping the emperor and all these pagan gods in order to follow Jesus alone. And that day, that was signing your own death warrant. How do you explain that? Well, it's simple. Like Jesus said, it's not by flesh and blood. It's because the father revealed to them that Jesus really is the Christ, the son of God. Their eyes were open to what Jesus said himself about true discipleship. You're still in Matthew 16, look at verse 24. Later, he says to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Countless before us have made that choice to follow Jesus, their eyes being open to his true identity, mission, and gospel. And we're today here, part of that same building. Now, we don't face death for our faith. We count ourselves privileged and blessed in that regard. We're thankful for that. But trials, and tribulation, persecution remains. Will you, though, still be a, a true disciple? Will you prove yourself one of those living stones? Though life is hard, the world is scary, enemies abound. Like Peter, though, will you in the end still say, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. I pray that describes you. And despite all hardships, no matter how difficult life gets, because of Easter, because the ultimate enemy of death has been defeated, we in the church have the ultimate assurance. In Christ, we too overcome. And therein, we gain the ultimate peace. There is no greater message beyond Easter that, that gives more hope in life. And as you believe then, it's only good and right for you to enjoy you know, that blessed byproduct of peace, joy, and assurance. They're all found in Christ and his victory. Now, at the same time, though, like I said before, God doesn't give us peace, joy, and assurance for nothing. Rather, he wants us to be secure in our future hope so that with our lives here, we might rest our minds, but busy our hands and open our mouths. We are to use this confidence that we have in Christ that, that not even death is a problem. We're to use that confidence to live for him and then to preach his gospel to the ends of the earth. And right after Peter said, we are living stones in God's spiritual household. He said this, First uh, Peter 2, 9. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. You see, why were we called out? In large part, it is to now put on display and proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. That, that's our mission now. That, that's why we're still here. And so we should be focused on this in our day and age, even in our troubled time. Our days are uncertain. Your eternity is not. Therefore, try worrying less and evangelizing more. There's a never-ending list of things to worry about concerning the, the future of Christians in America. 
We spend all day worrying about what might happen to Christians in America. And sometimes we need to do that and fight certain fights. But at the same time, our hope is not found in anything here below. That includes America and government and litigation and healthcare and police and military. As much as we love and appreciate all those things, Christ's kingdom is not of this world. Our hope is not found in in any of those things. And far better than for us to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And just remember, his kingdom does not come about by the sword or by Congress. It comes about by the gospel, the, the rock Petra of the church. And this is the work God has left us to do, so do it. Especially if you want to see a real transformation in our nation, preach the gospel. Widespread new birth is the only hope for this or any nation to change. So evangelize. Now, a lot of people in the world right now, because of the virus, are petrified. It sounds like to me that the the soil of their hearts is being tilled. What then is stopping you from, from giving them the words of life? telling them the real message of Easter. It's time for you, like Peter says, 1 Peter 3.15, to give an account for the hope that you have within you. Who do you say Jesus is? That's a question all must answer one way or another, one day or another. But I hope you get it right. And scripture was written for this purpose. John 20.31 says, these things have been written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And if you believe, then both rest and work in the assurance and confidence that you're part of his church and that nothing, not even death, will overcome it. I want you to bow with me in prayer, and I'm going to read Romans 8, 33-39. We're going to make this passage our, our prayer. Bow with me, Romans 8, 33. It says, Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who is raised. Who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us? From the love of Christ. Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And we thank you, Father, for these truths. We pray you simply make us steadfast in this hope. Help us to live in the confidence of Christ's victory over death. That we might focus more on just seeking his kingdom and and his righteousness. And that that confidence is what will enable us to to carry on in our worship and our witness to this world. That that is what the world needs right now. We pray you you help us in these things. You, You grow us in our resolve and in that confidence. And in the meantime, we always pray that you come quickly, Lord Jesus. And may we serve you and we long to be with you forever. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.